Exodus chapter 20. If you're visiting today, my name's Mark, uh, and I am one of the, the ministers here and glad to be a part of this church and glad you're with us here on this holiday weekend. We are in a series of messages called God Is, and we're focusing on characteristics of God that are important for us to understand about him so we can live with him. And we have uh, so far discovered that God is knowable, that the Bible says he's hard to fathom, his ways are not our ways, his thoughts are not our thoughts. So how can we know anything about him? Because he reveals himself, and the two ways he reveals himself, according to Jesus, is through truth and through grace. God's truth is uncompromising. He, He won't tell us something's okay if it's not. He won't tell us something is good if it's not. His truth is true, but his grace allows us the ability to fail and be loved and accepted anyway, so we can know about God. Then we talked about God is holy, which means he's set apart, that he is set apart for greater things. God will not compromise himself. What is best is best, and he settles for nothing less, and he desires that of all of us, that he can make us holy, to set us apart for greater usage. Then we talked about God is loving, that he's in pursuit of every one of us that his pursuit is not based on our goodness. God is love. God doesn't love. He is love. Everything that God does comes from his love. His grace, his mercy, and his truth are all loving toward us. Then last week we talked about not a characteristic, but an activity of God, an action of God that reveals who he is. And that's when we talked about God is serving us. And our challenge is because God served us even when we were the enemy, that God gave to us, he provides for us, he's winning us over with his goodness and his love by what he gives us each and every day, that we're all then, if we, if we get that, then our response is to serve him in return. You can still go out in the foyer uh, this week, the tables are there, and opportunities to sign up to serve in areas that you're gifted in are just opportunities to thank God for his goodness. As Adam said, we don't repay God back like he owes us anything, we do it because he's been so generous to each one of us. Today we're going to talk about God is supreme. And we're going to be looking at that section in Exodus chapter 20, which we call the Ten Commandments, which the Jewish people, the Hebrew nation, would call the Ten Words. Uh, they, they saw them less as commands, and instead it was more of a kingdom ethic. How do you live in this new kingdom? What is it like to live with God? And the beginning of the commandments, or the words, They're all about our relationship with God, and then you go to the back half, and the final six are about our relationship with one another. And what I want to challenge you to understand is, the Ten Commandments are not Old Testament, Old Covenant. The Ten Commandments, the ethics of those, every one of them is found in the New Testament. In fact, you can find the Ten Commandments right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. They're all hidden right within there. They're present. How do we live with God? How do we live with man? We're going to begin to talk about God's supremacy by focusing on the first two commandments in the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20, verse 2, the first one says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, there are several important things I want to point out of this so we understand about this God issue. The first is, I am the Lord your God. He uses a term there. He doesn't say, I am a God. He says, I am your, the Lord, your God. It's a personal thing. He's not just a God of nations, he's a God of individuals. And then he uses the term Lord God, which is the Hebrew word Elohim, which means creator, all-powerful. So God is telling us something here that's significant. And we need to piece this together to understand how it all comes. The first is, because he is creator God, he owns us. 
My dad used to play this game. I have three brothers, and we would be in the car, and because we were boys, we were punching, hitting, arguing. And so my dad used to play this game. He'd say, I'll buy ice cream for the first one of you that can name something God didn't create. And the game was on. I'd say, ice cream. And my dad would say, no, God created the cow and milk. And we would go, well, he was brilliant because what it bought him was 30 miles of silence. It was a perfect game. And we would go on and on. And I learned a valuable lesson in that silly little game. There is nothing God didn't create. So when he says, I am Lord God creator, Elohim, he's saying, I own you. But aren't we glad that God never really says, I own you? What he says is, I created you, and because of that, you and I ought to have a relationship. I am your Elohim. And then he adds an element to that. He comes in and he says, and not only am that, but I am the one who drew you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now most of us say, well, you never took me out of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. Yeah, he did. Because if you're a believer in Jesus, it was by taking the nation, Abraham's people, out of Egypt into the promised land that Jesus Christ was able to come through that lineage of faith. And because of Jesus Christ, believe it or not, church, we have been set free from Egypt and out of slavery. So you may say that's old history and it has nothing to do with me, then you've misunderstood the narrative of all scripture. When they were freed from Egypt, you and I were freed from Egypt. And God has declared in the first commandment, there is no other Elohim besides me and none that has delivered you from slavery. So God is creator and he's redeemer in all nations and in all generations. So I want to bring up three points about the supremacy of God that I think is important for us to understand. Number one, we all have idols. We all have idols. In verse 3 of Exodus 20, it says, you shall have no other gods before me. Now you may say to me right now, hey Mark, I do not have a gold statue or silver thing in my house that I go before every morning, fall on my knees and bow to. I didn't say you did. That's an old antique illustration of an idol. But every one of us has a God. And in America, this is so interesting to me, we don't want to have this conversation. Because we live in the land of John Wayne. I don't answer to anybody. I'm autonomous. I, I control my own future. It's all my stuff. I've earned it. This is mine. No one has a right to it. And I want you to know that that is not true. Here's why. Philosophers will tell you that nature will be served. What does that mean? I, I look it up and I read different philosophers and they say nature will be served. For instance, you were born to need food. It's undeniable. You have an appetite, you have cravings, and you have hunger. And you can't deny it. You can say, I don't, I'm not obligated to anything, I don't have to rely on anything, and it's not true. You need air to breathe. God created that as a necessity, and nature will be served. If you don't breathe in oxygen, you will die. Be as independent and John Wayne as you want to be. Without God giving us air, we all die. You need food. And you say, well, I can live without food for how long? Until you what? Die. And it's even been noted that when you don't eat the good things that God's given you to eat, wonderful things like bacon, <laughs> if you don't eat that, you should die. An unhappy life, at least. But there are things like strawberries, and this time of year I love it when strawberries and blackberries and any berry comes out, I just dig it. And, and God's given those, you noticed, right? He made those here on earth for us to eat. We didn't create those. 
He gave them to us. But we also know that nature will be served. And if you don't eat or there are no healthy foods for you to eat, we know people who eat unhealthy food. You've heard stories of people digging through dumpsters to find leftover food because they had no food. Nature will be served. Why do I tell you that? Because here's the truth. Your spiritual nature will be served too. You are created by God to worship. It is as natural to you as breathing air and as necessary for life. So when I say we all have idols and you say back to me, I don't worship anything, then you worship yourself. Because we all worship something. It's as natural to our spirit as anything else. That is why you are wowed and awed by art and beauty and music and moments of sentimentality. It's why we're moved in our spirit. You don't wake up one day going, I want to be brought to tears by something beautiful. But when you see something beautiful, it can bring you to tears. Can I have an amen? You are created by God to worship. It's part of your nature. So when God says, you shall have no other gods before me, he's not entering into a debate as when you or if you ever worship. He's saying, you worship. Choose what you worship. And don't choose anything but me. You see, it's the nature of sin to take that which was created to fulfill us, the good food, if you will, and to replace it with food that we choose. To See the thing we're to worship, but instead say, I'm not going to worship that fully. I'm going to worship that part-time, but I'm going to add these other things, like my favorite sports team, or my job, or my career, or my feelings, or my sensations. I'm going to bring those into my life, and I'm going to worship this guy here every now and then, especially when I need him. But I'm going to get most of my needs met in these other things. And God says, don't do that. Those things did not create you, and those things cannot sustain you. So why do we have idols or gods, choose your favorite term of of these? Why do we have them? Because back in Genesis 3, the initial lie in this world is that if you make God the supreme authority in your life, you won't have much of a life. Isn't that what the serpent said to Eve? If you do what God tells you to do and you don't do what God tells you not to do, you're not going to have a very good life. And so what did they do? They decided that they would worship their own feelings and their own control and power, and it cost them everything. That is what sin does. We believe that if we control things, we can get things to serve us rather than choosing to serve God. It's the basis of sin. In Romans chapter 1, Paul describes the process by which we enter into sin and what sin does to us. And if you've never read Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, and you want to be shocked and startled into reality, it's a good place to read. But in Romans 1, 21, Paul says, for although they knew God, creator, redeemer, they neither glorified him nor gave thanks to him. They they chose to realize there is a God and worship other things. Verse 25, the consequences. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. They took other gods in replace of the one God who had earned the right to be worshipped. And what do we expect? Why do we do this? Why do we say to God, I don't want you having control over my life? It's because we don't know who God is and we want to be in charge. Isaiah chapter 44, verse 17 
The prophet says, from the rest, he makes a god his idol. He bows down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, save me, you are my god. Why do we trade the real god for these false gods? Is because we control them. And we're hoping somehow by controlling them, they can save us. And once again, you look at me and say, I don't have an idol center in my home. You may not, but has a television program ever made you feel whole? Have you ever watched a program, a reality show that's not really real and watched it because you connected with relationships with people you don't have real relationships with? Does your job or your profession, does, does the amount of money you have or, or your property, do you feel saved because you have enough saved away that you know you can retire and not have a need to rely on anybody else? Church, we are created not only to worship, but we're created to be in community. And if you, if you work your whole life to have all of these protections around you so you never need another person, you're drinking poison, you're eating garbage, and your body will not be sustained on what you're feeding it. It's living your entire life on candy. Your body will reject it. And your spirit will reject false gods who you think are saving you and all they're doing is wasting you. And that was a happy thought on a Memorial Day weekend, isn't it? You're also glad you came to church. Well, there's hope at the end of this, but we really don't understand hope until we understand how desperate our condition is. So when we look at this, if you you answer yourself with, Here's how you know you have an idol. What happens when you lose it? What happens when the stock market crashes and thousands and maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars of your investment disappear as if they never existed? How do you feel then? You just discovered what you thought was going to save you. What happens when your health goes? What happens when you're laid off and unemployed? What happens when your children don't turn out to be the way you want them to turn out or they don't get pro contracts or they don't get a scholarship to a college or they graduate and the team continues to play games without them? Then you realize what you're investing your life in. My boys are not going to save me. Jesus Christ is the only hope I have of surviving. The God who created me is the God who redeems me, and as much as I love my family, my family is simply people to journey with toward Christ. So we have to understand what we find ourselves being made meaningless by is our gods. Now, I will tell you this, if God ever leaves us, we're all jacked up. But I can be broke and saved. I can be friendless and saved. I can be persecuted and saved. But without Jesus, I can't be saved. And so that God who took me out of Egypt, he is the God to be worshipped. Romans 124 says, he's explaining what we do when we trade God for things. He says, therefore God gave them over. You can read the rest of the verse. In fact, I'd encourage you to read the whole chapter. But God gave them over. Here's what God does. God says, If you believe your money's going to save you, then I'm going to let it save you, or not. If you think your friendships and your reputation are going to save you, then I'm going to let them save you, or not. If you think hanging out with the cool people and the people that are happening and they have status, if you think that's who you want to be and that's where you get your security and that's what identifies you as who you are, then I'm going to let you, I'm going to let them save you, or not. That's why God says you're to have no other God before me. 
2 Kings verse, uh, chapter 17, it says, They rejected God's decrees and the covenant he had made with their fathers and the warnings he had given them. They followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. The reason we don't want to worship God fully is because we would rather have something worship us. We would rather have others. So what you bow to, what saves you at the end of the day is the thing that's your God. Is it the attention of people? Is it the affection of others? Is it the applause and the accolades you receive from people? Is it what they think of you? At the end of the day, if those are the things we're worshiping by thinking they're going to save us, we're going to find out they're worthless and we've invested our life in a worthless thing. So, that's the first command. We all have idols. The second is, it's not only what you worship, but why. And this is found in verse 4, which is the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. So the first command forbids we worship anyone but God or anything but God. And the second command forbids the worship of the true God in the wrong way. Now instantly, we're going to get into a group of opinions. But it's not worshiping God stylistically. It's what we do with the representations of God. Because when, to be honest, when Aaron made the golden calf, it wasn't the golden calf that got them in trouble. It was how they turned their attention from the mountain of God to a thing they made with their hands and equated it to God. Explain further. If I can pick one thing, and I'm trying to be provocative this morning, I want to be quick with a a precise shot. It's what many of us do with things like the Bible or the cross. The Bible reflects the words of God and the truth of God so I can see God and understand him. But some of us worship our Bibles. I remember one time getting one of the nastiest letters I'd ever received in ministry. And I've gotten quite, some people are really good at these. And I got one for the simple act. And I'm not pr- professing innocence here, but it shows you how we can get twisted. I was preaching one Sunday and I laid my my physical Bible on the communion table behind me and got one of the angriest letters about how disrespectful that was. That is nothing but a piece of paper wrapped in leather. It's the truth that's a living, not the book. The cross. People, crosses and crucifix, they become these holy relics. If they're not reflecting Jesus... They become the holy thing. And this is what the command says. Don't make things of this earth holy. God's holy. Let them reflect on God so we see him, not them. Does it make sense, church? And it's easy for us to do it. We get caught up in worship styles, worship locations, times of worship, communion tables. What what materials we use for the, the emblems of the communion. We get caught up in all those things. They can become idols if we don't remember what they reflect. It can be real wine or grape juice. Does it reflect the blood of Jesus? Or otherwise it becomes an idol. We have to do this at this time on this day or we're not real. That's an idol. The truth is, God is alive. And he's living not in things. He said, you can't build a temple that can contain me. And so we don't. In Numbers chapter 21... The Israelites were out in the wilderness coming out of Egypt and they, they mouthed off and got really <laughs> condescending toward God and God did what God does and fiery serpents came into the camp and started biting bad people. True story. Numbers 21. 
And, and Moses runs to God and says, oops, what do we do? God says, I want you to make a serpent out of bronze, and I want you to walk into the middle of the camp, and I want you to hold it high in the air, and everyone who's been bitten who looks at that serpent will be healed. And it was exactly as he said would happen. And four verses in Numbers 21 is all it says about that, which is kind of funny. That big event happened, and we move on. But we find out later it reappears. In 2 Kings chapter 18, King Hezekiah finds out that people found the bronze serpent and began to worship it and bowed down to it and began to to burn incense to it. And King Hezekiah had it melted down and broken up and he got rid of it because the thing that once reflected the grace of God became equal to God and God says, don't do that. So even your church can become an idol if it's not reflecting God, instead it reflects back on you. When we take the things of God and we try to control God through them, God says, please don't do that. So we all have idols, and it's not only what we worship, but why. Which leads me to my final point. Our God is worthy. So when you sat here going, I don't know if I have idols, you'll discover them. God will show you what your idols are. Do you know how God shows you what your idols are? He knocks them over. Ask Gideon about that. Gideon went and knocked down the false gods of another nation and they set it back up the next day. They came back the next day. Its head had fallen off and its hands had fallen off and God went, any questions? So ask God if you have any idols and they probably won't be around tomorrow. Some of us are going to be broke. We're going to go, oops. Because God says, I'll show you who's really powerful. Our God is supremely worthy. Look at verse 5. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. This is one of those passages growing up that I read that I thought, whoops, God's not perfect. He's jealous. I I don't know about you, but when, when I have feelings of jealousy, I hate them. I wish they would go away. But once I start feeding them, they grow. I now know why they call it the green monster. I hate feelings of jealousy, but I'll be honest with you, what I dislike even more is when someone who loves me feels jealous. Because it gets in the relationship and messes it up, doesn't it? Church, are you with me on this one? So how do you feel about a jealous God? Well, let me define jealousy from the Hebrew concept, not the American concept. Jealousy is this, that God is not indifferent to what we do and, and uh, how we live. His love for us is such, and listen to me carefully, That God's jealousy won't allow him to live a lesser life than we were created to live. He he won't watch us drink poison and say, well, I love you, I'm just not going to. God can have hard conversations with us. His jealousy requires it. He won't let us trade in the better things of life for the lesser things. God will not sit by. He loves us enough to say something. He will not let that be okay. He is jealous for us. He created us and he redeemed us and he has every right to us and he begs us to live with him. He will not sit back while we go with other things and say, that's okay, maybe that'll work. What he says is, it is going to fail. And when it comes crashing down, I will be right here for you. That's a good God, isn't it, church? That's a jealousy I can live with. It's a jealousy I can understand. Jesus said it this way, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and your neighbor as yourself. It sounds like the first two commandments of the ten words, doesn't it? He's saying up front, there's only one God, and you should love him with everything you are, and then you'll serve. Because you'll understand who he is. And for a lot of us, we think, at least I do, and maybe I'll just apply this to all of us, We think that by worshiping God, we're going to be restricted. 
Like, here's what it says. Worship God, have no fun. Worship God, enjoy nothing. Worship God, be pious and disconnected. I'm going to tell you that's not true. Worship God and find freedom. And sometimes freedom is found in being told no. As a father, there are certain things I restrict my boys from doing because I'm their dad, I can, and I should. And you may say, well, you should let your children experience everything. No way. Absolutely not. I'm not going to let a nine-year-old drink alcohol. He physically can't handle it. It's a terrible idea and it does him no good. So I'm going to say to my son, you're going to obey the law and me. And you're not going to do that. I wouldn't let him eat out of a dumpster. I wouldn't let them pour expired milk on their cereal. Well, they have the right to experience that and try. No, they don't. That's a ridiculous argument. And we use that same argument on God. If God really loved me, he'd never tell me no. No, my God is smarter than me. My God is supremely wise, brilliant, and if he created this entire world and all of its beauty, I think when he says no, that's a good choice. So he restricts my freedom so that I can live and experience all that life's meant to be experienced. So parents, tell your kids no, because God told them no. So they understand that there is grace and freedom, not restriction, with God. Because God wants us to experience the best things of life, and he knows what they are. I don't. And that's why, in his wisdom, he's supreme. So, the first thing we need to settle, and I said this first hour and I laughed at myself, I said, we need to settle it once and for all, and then I laughed. No, we don't. We need to settle this issue every day of our life for the rest of our lives. Every moment I wake, or every morning I wake up, I need to ask and answer one question. Who's going to lead today? Me or him? Each and every moment we have to make those choices. So here's the question of the day. Who is going to be the supreme authority in your life? Your control or his control? Because an idolater says, I want to create a God that pleases me. A worshiper says, I want a God to create a man out of me that pleases him. An idolater says, I can't believe in a God who will not support what I want. A a worshiper says, I have a living God who is allowing me to be reshaped into what I should be. So I ask you a question this morning. Do you have a God who is under your control? Or do you have a real God whose control you're under? It's the first two commands of the ten words. Do you have a God who you desire to control? Or a God who you're willing to submit control to? You see, when you look at the New Testament, here's where it becomes real to me. You have Peter and John arrested in the book of Acts. And they're going to be executed the next morning for rebellion against Rome. And an angel comes in in the middle of the night and frees them from jail, and they're set free. But you also have John the Baptist, who was in rebellion against Roman authority, and he was beheaded from prison, beheaded as a party favor. Can you handle a God who lets some people go free and others not? Can you handle a God in who his wisdom says, I'm going to take you down this path, even when it doesn't look like it's going to be good for you? like John the Baptist? Or do you have to have a God who frees you every time you get imprisoned? Because the supremacy of God is founded on our willingness to subjugate or submit ourselves or bow down before God. 
It used to be, I'm told in, in ancient days, King Arthur period of time, that when you bowed before a king, you were submitting your head and neck to him to say, cut my head off or let me live. It's under your control. The supremacy of God is based on his love, his holiness, and the knowledge of his truth and grace. And so the question for each one of us today is, can you trust the Jesus who came to reveal to us how good and loving his God is, even when things aren't seemingly going our way? It's the challenge for us. There's some questions found in Romans 8. They won't appear on the screen. I just want you to listen to them. Because what I love about Paul in Romans is he's asking the questions you and I are asking today. He says, who will bring any charge against those who God justifies? That God has chosen. So the question is, if, if we worship God, is there any vulnerability, any exposure? And the answer is no, because it's God who justifies. When God says you are saved and his, you are saved and his. It, who is it, or who is he that condemns us? He says, no one, Jesus The one who died and was raised again is the one who will do that. And he came to save us, not condemn us. And who will separate us from the love of Christ? And then Paul gets carried away. Height, nor depth, nor length, nor anything created by man. The answer, of course, is no. There is nothing more powerful than God. He is supreme. But this God is not just showing up in the book of Romans. It's found throughout all scripture. In Jonah chapter 2, last week I read, he said, I cried out to the Lord. And surprisingly, Jonah goes, and he answered. Huh. He's alive and doing well. In Philippians, Paul says, My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. All of your needs. Psalm 23. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Luke 12. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you his kingdom. So church, here's the question of the morning. Can you handle a God who can handle you? Or do you need a God who you can handle? Because the God of the universe has said, I am the Lord your God, Elohim. And I brought you out of Egypt. And I delivered you from slavery. Worship me. And today we get to choose who we worship. But for some of us in this room, we can declare that there is a God. But we can't declare that he's taken us out of slavery. Because we've never let the work of Jesus Christ be applied to us. We've never accepted his gift and we're not living in the truth of it. And if you want to know what that means, then go to one of these tables where the lamps are lit. And we'd like to meet with you and answer questions and schedule a meeting with you so that we can show you. Because in just a few moments, a young man is going to give his life to Jesus Christ and he is going to be able to say here today, I have a Lord my God and I have been taken out of Egypt and set free. Because sometimes God says no, but it's always for greater freedom. So this morning, if you want to know what that means, come talk to us. But right now, let's stand up and let's give worth to God by declaring who he is.